0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dashran Johan. At one point, particularly the years following World War II, it seemed like Europe had defeated the far right. But now right-wing populist parties are marching back into the mainstream. Marine Le Pen in France and Catholic Conservative Party Vox in Spain are incredibly popular. Giorgia Maloney, the current Prime Minister of Italy, is widely regarded as the country's most far-right Prime Minister since the fascist dictator Benito Mussolini. So how did the far-right go from the fringes into the mainstream? And how has this contributed to polarisation? Joining me on today's episode is an expert in European politics, Associate Professor Dr. Fernando Casalbertoa from the School of Politics and International Relations at the University of Nottingham, UK. Welcome to the show, Dr. Fernando.
1: It's a pleasure to be here with you.
0: So, how did far-right parties Europe march into the mainstream over the past couple of decades?
1: First of all, I think that... um... Thinking that, you know, Europe had defeated the fat right is not the right approach. I think that, you know, perhaps, I mean, this, this like everything in life, you know, this goes uh, with waves. It is true that, you know, there was this 2016 momentum, right, with the Brexit referendum, you know. Of course, you know, Trump later, you know, in Europe, you know, Le Pen and and other, you know, uh, countries like uh, Poland or Hungary. But uh, I think that, you know, I mean, since especially, you know, the 2008 Great Recession, the radical right uh, has been on the rise. Also, we shouldn't forget the radical left, you know, in Spain, for example, with uh, Podemos or with Syriza in in, in Greece. Um, How they have become part of the mainstream? Well, I think that, you know, the main uh, uh, reason uh, also for the rise of uh, populist parties, is the crisis of traditional political parties. I think that, you know, it is uh, uh, the, the main determinant of why, you know, radical uh, parties are now becoming successful. The fact that the socialists and especially, you know, the conservatives uh, in uh, you know, have been declining, you know, over time, uh, clearly shows that, you know, the voters have become orphans somehow. And they, of course, you know, have uh, taken refuge in those parties that, uh, let's say, uh, uh, present easy solutions to complex complex problems. If we go back in history, I like a lot to go back in history because I think we can learn a lot from history. You know, we shouldn't forget that, you know, Mussolini or Hitler would not have become, you know, a prime minister uh, of their respective countries if not for the help that the conservatives and the Christian Democrats. Think, for example, of Denmark. Or, or Sweden, where, you know, conservative parties have adopted, you know, a stricter anti-immigration, you know, stance, just thinking that they can take back some of the voters that left their parties and is are now voting for the populist right. So, these are, you know, the main trends that you see.
0: So, let's talk about that a little bit, right? Because you brought up this, this anti-immigration thing, and I think that is one of the these sort of themes that unite the various far-right parties across European countries, right? Because country to country, um, you know, the history is different. There are different nuances. It's not just a matter of copy and pasting. But I'm wondering how have the opposition to immigration, perhaps even, um, you know, this opposition to Islam, how have these agendas expanded to include you know culture wars minority rights how is are, are these the factors that are uniting far right parties in europe
1: well, clearly, you know, I mean, as you mentioned, you know, there are, you know, nuances and differences among, you know, different uh, political uh, parties. For example, Vox is not the same as, you know, the National Front, and National Front is different from Brothers of Italy, right? right. But there are, you are right, you know, certain, let's say, uh, uh, common points, you know, uh, Euroscepticism, you know, because, you know, these are nationalist parties, you know, they are far right, and these are characterized, you know, by their nationalism. Right, and therefore, you know, they have this understanding of uh, the people as a homogenized nation. Anything that does not belong to the people, you know, should be expelled. And as you can imagine, the immigrants, you know, do not belong to the original uh, people. Right, Uh, and uh, of course, you know, most of the immigrants not most, but, you know, a large, you know, a, a, a cluster of those immigrants tends to uh, be uh, Muslim because, you know, in many countries like in France, the Netherlands, Belgium, for example, also Germany, they came from uh, places like Morocco or, or Turkey that are predominantly uh, Muslim. So in a way, we say that, you know, this could be a kind of accumulation of issues, right? It's not so much about the the, the, the religion. Uh, it's the fact that they are, do not belong to the people, but, you know, there is a accumulation that, you know, they are both Immigrants and Muslims. No, uh, another important uh, topic I think that is uh, has united is uh, Euroscepticism, which in a way you know is also linked with the immigration uh, issue, and you know very well all the fights about, you know, the taking over Syrian immigrants, you know, in the European Union. You know, you had the more cosmopolitan, you know, governments of Western Europe, and then you have, you know, the Eastern Europeans ones who, despite not having Syrians in their own countries, you know, they use this discourse, you know, of course, you know, in order to attract voters. I remember, for example, you know, Orbán, Victor Orbán, that was, of course, you know, making a row about, you know, all these quotas when he had, you know, uh, maybe just 20, you know, immigrants in in Hungary, right? So as you can imagine, there was not not a reason to. But of course, you know, I mean, this uh, also helps them to uh, come together, you know, and portray the image that they are not a pariah, but they are really the true you know uh, mainstream so right. you know these 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 common themes are the ones that allow them you know to really show that they are not uh, you know an exception but they are the rule according to their 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 discourse right another important thing and perhaps you know this is not so much um, uh, highlighted sometimes, is that they are illiberal parties. Mm-hmm. This is something that, you know, it is a common, this is the perhaps the, the only thing that is really common to all of them, you know, right. they uh, have this idea, uh, this majoritarian or uh, winning takes all conceptualization of uh, democracy. Victor Orban calls this as it is, you know, we are an illiberal democracy, right? They do not respect the separation of powers, they do not respect, you know, the minorities and therefore, you know, they anti-immigrant discourse because the immigrants are usually you know, minorities in, in, in a country. And, and and this is something that, of course, you know, uh, allows them to have, you know, these conversations and talk the, the, the same language. And, of course, oppose the real mainstream.
0: I want to talk to you about the culture wars in Europe because I think it's an important um, piece of the puzzle of or symptom of what has happened, right? Because it seems like a large part of political discourse today is about petty cultural issues blown out of proportion or identity politics. Now, it could be anti-immigrant, anti-abortion, religion, etc. without much arguments about political economy.
1: Before the 2000s, before the Cold War, you know, politics was about economy. Everything was about economy. Economy determined, you know, the distinction between left uh, and and, and right, right? Right. And, uh, of course, you know, uh, uh, in economy... You can uh, compromise, you know, you may want to raise taxes, you may want to reduce taxes, there is always a way of compromising. The problem is that there have been, you know, a a couple of processes that had led to the decline of economy as the main, you know, uh, dimension of competition. Uh, the first one, of course, you know, could be, you know, the Washington consensus, you know, and don't forget about Tony Blair, the third wave, you know, the adoption of a lot of, you know, uh, poli- uh, policies, right? So the, the, the left has uh, abandoned the traditional discourse that economically they had. This is the first thing. Secondly, for example, in Europe, uh, we have the Europeanization process. This Europeanization process led, for example, to the European Central Bank to take a lot of the economic competences that, uh, you know, uh, the governments had. For example, you cannot devaluate, you know, your currency, you know, if you wish to, right? Especially, you know, if you have Europe, there is no way. The European Central Bank, you know, is uh, determining a lot of the, you know, uh, financial policies within the uh, European Union. So, of course, you know, if you don't have your main dimension of competition, you still have to compete. You still have to win elections, right? And you have to get into parliament. So what do you do? You go to the next thing that distinguishes hmm. you, which is, you know, culture. And this is where, you know, all the problems form. If you add to, the, to this fact... The, the, the secularization process that has changed, of course, you know, the uh, view uh, voters usually had on issues like, you know, gay marriage, abortion laws, etc. then you have, you know, a clear uh, melting pot. With cultural, the problem is that, you know, with cultural issues, you know, you cannot arrive to a compromise. I myself personally believe that, you know, compromises even in cultural issues are possible, but they are very, very difficult. And this is where you have the, all the, the cultural wars. And of course, you know we shouldn't forget as well. You know, and this is explained very well by you know uh, the work of uh, the political science, American political science, Ronald Inglehart, You had uh, because of the affluence of, you know, European societies, especially Western European societies, you know, there there, there is um, a change in the worries of, uh, you know, voters. It's not so much about the economy. It is about, for example, you know, climate or about social and minority minority rights. And uh, in Western Europe, there has been, because of this secularization process, a kind of, you know, movement towards a certain consensus, which is controversial for those traditional voters that they still have, you know, a less com- cosmopolitan understanding of uh, certain certain issues. So what you have, you know, is a kind of you know a, a, a post-materialist, as it's called, revolution. But you know, after a revolution, you know, that it becomes a counter-revolution, and this is where the radical right, you know, populist parties uh, come uh, in. And because they are focused not in economy so much but in culture, this increases you know the levels of uh, polarization because you know it becomes a kind of identity politics rather than you know
0: uh, uh, issues. I've got a follow-up question to that, but for could you paint a picture for us, how polarized is Europe right now? because I think a lot of people follow American politics and so they, are, they understand how polarized it is in the US. How polarized are things in, the, in Europe right now?
1: Well, I will just put a very current example. You know, uh, yesterday and today there is the uh, you know a debate, parliamentary debate about appointing a new prime minister in Spain. Right. Uh, the two main parties are the Conservative People's Party and the Socialist Party. In uh, you know, uh, in normal circumstances, you would think that they would come together to form. A, no one of them have absolute majority. Okay, uh, so uh, uh, the main the main idea would be that they would come together and try to at least you know uh, find a solution in order not to repeat elections like we had you know uh, some years ago, where we had basically you know four elections in four years. However, you know the uh, conservative party is now presenting its candidature but support with the support of a radical right party the box that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation and if it is not successful you have you know the uh, socialist party that will continue in government with the communists and the radical left but with the support of a former terrorist political party, Bildu, the support of a pro-independence Catalan party whose leader is being prosecuted by the Spanish uh, uh, justice. So as you can see, instead of having the two main leaders coming together, you know, having, you know, a compromise that would allow us to take out from this crisis, what we see is the main parties, you know, making coalitions with, you know, the string uh, uh, political parties. So I think this clearly shows, you know, how polarized, you know, uh, things are. And I'm just telling you about my country, Spain, and because this is a very current example. It's happening right now as we speak, you know, the debate is taking place. But, you know, think, for example, in, in Poland. Poland is going to have, you know, elections in 15 days, roughly, right? And uh, what you have is basically, you know, two different, you know, uh, groups. You are, you know, uh, pro-peace, Law and Justice Party, leader by Kaczynski, or you are anti-peace. And even, I was spending my summer, part of my summer in Poland, even you see it in the conversations, you know, in the restaurants, you know, even within families, you know, there is this the uh, thing that comes uh, be, 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 be between them the fact that you know you are supporting you know the government party you are not supporting the government party i have seen even neighbors who used to be friends not to talk anymore because of this so i clear these two, i think that clearly these two examples show uh, uh, how a polarized europe has become
0: on the show with me today is Associate Professor Dr Fernando Casalbertoa from the School of Politics and International Relations at University of Nottingham, UK. We will continue this discussion after the break. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dr. Johan. And on the show with me today is Associate Professor Dr. Fernando Bertoa from the School of Politics and International Relations at the University of Nottingham, UK. And we're talking about the rise of right-wing populism in Europe. So Dr. Fernando, how much did the past four decades of neoliberalism or neoliberal capitalism contribute to this rise of polarization um, around racial and religious lines, or it could be anything, right? Xenophobic lines and and so on and so forth. Um, Because, you know, like you mentioned, I think you mentioned Tony Blair, um, Thatcherism, um, Reaganism, um, and the... Around the world, um, various political leaders, including here in Malaysia, adopted their sort of philosophy. So we gave more powers to the private companies, less powers to the government and less powers to the people. Um, The rich got richer, the poor got poorer. I mean, the inequality that has happened over the past four decades is undeniable. How much of this um, contributes to this rise of populist, far-right populist movements, as well as the polarization that we see in Europe?
1: Well, I think that we already talked a bit about uh, one of the, you know, implications, which is, you know, the Washington Consensus. But, you know, you mentioned one very, you know, also one very important word, which is inequality. Certainly, uh, you know, I think that uh, some uh, liberal policies where I wouldn't say wrong this is something that we can debate but they were unchecked they remain unchecked and this is the main uh, reason that we had for example you know the financial crisis in 2000, 2008 which of course you know required you know, the uh, austerity policies which led of course to more inequality and more impoverishment of you know certain uh, um, uh, clusters of the of the of certain groups of the of the population and this is the 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 main issue because you know these Uh, voters consider themselves to be left behind. This makes them feel that, you know, they have been abandoned by their, you know, uh, traditional uh, political uh, parties. Of course, then, you know, the uh, far right and the far left this case as well, you know, they come in with, as I mentioned, you know, these simple solutions to complex problems. You know, they 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 play the, the the daddy part. You know, the state is going to you know help you to solve all these uh, all these problems, right? And they, you know, certainly uh, uh, are being uh, attracted by 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 these parties. Not to forget, of course, you know, um, that the, the 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 far right, the, the radical right party, have done something, which in a way. We could conceive it as very smart, you know, because they have combined this, on the one hand, sentiment of belonging, which at the end of the day, these people are lacking because, as I, as I mentioned, you know, they are feeling abandoned, right? So they they feel themselves as a part, you know, of a, of a group, the group of the original nationals, right? But on the other hand, economically, they have adopted the policies that the socialist, you know, uh, parties have abandoned. You know, so status, uh, you know, policies. They they help, you know, they attract them both from the feelings part and from the pocket part, you know. So I think that, you know, in this sense, uh, uh, neo-capitalism has, you know, uh, of course, you know, affected the uh, rise of uh, populist radical right parties in this way.
0: What has become of the European left? Because at one point, parties that leaned to the left, especially social democratic parties, were incredibly popular. In some
1: countries, I would say that they have uh, died out of success. In, uh, yes, because, you know, a lot of the uh, claims and the, you know, policies that they were asking for have been adopted, even for the rightist parties. You know, you mentioned the Even there, you know, the the, the, the the conservative parties in Scandinavia are more leftist than, you know, many others in Absolutely. other parts of Europe. So in a way, we could say that in some in some countries, they have died out of success, economical success. Uh, and therefore, you know, they, they, they needed to find... Um, Uh, different issues uh, in order to, you know, win elections. The problem is that, you know, those different issues tend to be more the domain of other parties. So this, of course, as you can imagine, you know, uh, put them in disadvantage. This This is one thing. On the other hand, of course, is the fact that Because of this, you know, uh, let's say Washington consensus, uh, a lot of the uh, leftist parties have abandoned their own, uh, you know, uh, their own voters, you know. I mean, think of the last elections in the United Kingdom, their famous red belt, you know, they voted for Boris Johnson, which is just, you know, something incredible, right? And and this is, you know, uh, something that you can also see in uh, countries like uh, Germany, but also, for example, France. Uh, the Socialist Party is in disarray because, you know, what you see is that, you know, they, uh, by focusing on this gender politics, you know, this uh, climate politics, what they are, they are doing is basically, you know, keeping their more uh, cosmopolitan intellectual uh, well-prepared you know voters Uh, and these voters that were the traditional one the workers you know the 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 less affluent you know need to find you know new uh, uh, political uh, party because for example they will never be able to afford you know an electric car they 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 don't have the, the the means right so what party is offering them to be taken care of and not to you know have to bear the cost of this new, uh, you know, climate, you know, policies? Well, the radical right party. So as you can see, you know, everything, you know, all the puzzle, you know, comes together when you try to understand how political parties have been moving, you know, in different directions.
0: It feels like that mainstream progressive parties around the world um, over the past four decades, like you said, um, abandoned their voters in the sense that they became complacent and they became technocrats or they started to, you know, absorb a lot of technocrats into their parties. Um, And these technocrats, they represent the interests of the professional and managerial class of society rather than being this vanguard of marginalised communities, you know, demanding the expansion of the common good and the redistribution of wealth to the common folk. What happened there?
1: You know, it's important to mention when you say marginalized communities, you mean from an economic point of view, because right. at the end of the day, the left nowadays, you know, is making the argument for marginalized, you know, communities, identity communities.
0: Hold on, I think focusing on human rights is exceptionally important. I want to stress that women's rights is incredibly important, the rights of children, immigrants, refugees, sexual minor- minorities, ethnic minorities. Where it becomes a problem, at least for me, is not looking at these issues through an intersectional lens or not grounding these issues in class analysis. So, for example, class plays a significant role in a woman's ability to access reproductive health care. So it's a woman's rights issue, but it is grounded in class analysis because low-income women, for example, may struggle to afford contraception, abortion services and prenatal care, which impacts their reproductive choices. This is just one example um, to highlight how important it is to always ground um, identity politics in class analysis, to always look at um, issues surrounding um, communities um, or or identity um, through an intersectional lens.
1: Yes, but, you know, but this is not the, the, the case uh, the case anymore. I mean, you know, uh, the the discourse of leftist politicians, there is no mention of class at all. So, you know, this has been uh, completely uh, forgotten. It is also true, I mean, we shouldn't blame, you know, the leftist parties all the time, you know, the process of, you know, a, a, um, a globalization, you know, and the rise in terms of, you know, neo-capitalism and industrialization, uh, uh, or, or this, not industrialization, but, you know, this, this new wave, this new technological revolution—sorry, this new technological revolution—has changed also the way you know uh, different classes are are composed. In, in, if we are going to still keeping you know this Marxist you know term of, of, of classes, mm-hmm. right? And I think that you know this has uh, confused uh, leftist parties in the in the first place. They have not been able to adapt. To uh, you know, a, a social changes, and of course, you know, by 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 not being able to adapt, they have somehow been the the product of their own fears. And what has happened is that you know they have re- taken refuge in the in the state. They have uh, uh, basically stopped being the change that brought the you know interest of their you know uh, voters. Usually, workers into you know economic policies in government, and they have colluded. If you add this to the Washington Consensus we were talking uh, before, they have colluded with the uh, conservative right, because you know of this collusion and this movement to the center. You know all these voters have become orphans, both in. The right and the left side, and this has led to the rise of the of the of the radical of the radical right. You know, this is a kind of catch-22 uh, situation because you know, I mean, the, the 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 political parties didn't understand the voters, then their voters also started to you know to look for uh, uh, different uh, political parties, and because they have been abandoned and because of this collusion, they needed something to distinguish in themselves again from the conservative right, and this is when it comes all this you know gender, climate, you know, race uh, politics, but. But they are not taught anymore, they are not thought anymore from the point of view of this uh, class struggle because you know Marxism who has been defeated after the Cold War is not cool anymore. So you see I think this is something that uh, explains what is going on.
0: How does the far right tap into the insecurities and anxieties faced by working class masses? Because it seems to me that a lot of people are angry because of the rising inequality, among many other issues. Now, the anger to me is both understandable and justified. But what happens is... The right-wing populists who swoop in and say, you know what's causing your anger, what's causing these problems? It's the refugees and the immigrants who are stealing your jobs. It's women. It's the fault of sexual minorities asking for their equal rights.
1: So on the one hand, political parties, traditional political parties, are buying this simplistic, simplistic discourse of the populist uh, parties. This, right. is, this is one thing. And this is also because you know, they have abandoned their educative function. I think that, you know, pol- traditional political parties, you know, mass parties especially, you know, they tend to have, you know, this more educative function. Uh, moreover, you know, these kind of generalizations do not go uh, anywhere, especially because they are not true. Think of, for example, you think that everybody that voted for Brexit, you know, was you know uh, clearly crazy uh, like you know some have said no not at all some of them you know they just simply wanted you know a different relationship with the uh, European Union the problem is that you know the conservative party adopted this populist discourse of the will of the people which as we know it was not even the will of the people because out of the 51.2 what it is is just 36% of those which have the right to vote in the United Kingdom. So where is the majority? Right. But you know, this is a this is a different thing. So as you as as you can see, you know, uh, this is a problem that you know the traditional uh, political parties have. You know, and it's a problem of 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 discourse. It's a problem of explanation. And because going as again, you know, back to our our uh, conversations and the problems of the of the uh, traditional left, it is clear that there is a problem with the welfare state. Well, you know, if our you know, citizens are having, for example, less children, it is impossible that the pension system will work. Therefore, you know, we need more immigrants. So it's a question of you know, explaining and getting a compromise at the end of the day. I think that you know, the conservative, of course, would understand this. But the problem is, no, because we have forgotten this you know, class or economic you know, uh, discourse. We focus on the identity. So everything is about, no, no, immigrants are good, right? And for the right, as you mentioned, because you always need a scapegoat at the end of the in 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 Nazi Germany, where the Jews, you know, in France are, you know, the the Argelia, uh, the people from Algeria, you know, in the Netherlands, you know, the people from Turkey. You always need this scapegoat. So, the right is using this, you know, in order to uh, increase their their votes. But you know, but there has to be a serious conversation, which of course is not allow because of the polarization that we were talking about, but, you know, in the case of the of the welfare state, neither all immigrants are good, and I think that, you know, a, a certain control of immigration, even the International Monetary Fund has talked about, you know, the necessary for, you know, controlling to a certain point immigration, nor, you know, all immigrants are bad, you know, and this is something that, unfortunately, because of the polarization, the traditional parties are not able to talk, but, you know, in this simple thing of the welfare state, you know, I think that a compromise, you know, would be uh, possible. And not only possible, it is needed, because what is clear is that, you know, the welfare states, for example, in Europe cannot keep up, for example, if we are going to restrict, you know, immigration. Here in the United Kingdom, where where I live, you know, we have also shortages in the supermarkets, because, you know, after Brexit, a lot of, you know, uh, uh, foreigners uh, left. So as you can see, you cannot keep up with the, you know, uh, uh, market economy, if you don't have immigrants who are, able to do the work that the nationals do not want. And they are complaining, because they have been told that they are the problem, that, you know, uh, the immigrants are the the problem, when in reality, they might be, in many cases, the real solution. And in the United States, imagine what would be the United States without Mexicans.
0: What is the potential long-term consequences of the far-right, some rising influence, the rise of populist rhetoric, um, especially in what we call the post-truth world um, of politics that we live in. Uh, What is the potential long-term consequences of all of this on European politics and societies?
1: Well, I I myself have uh, uh, analysed this and I published an an article with a colleague from the uh, Autonomous University in Madrid where we look at the effects on the quality of democracy uh, of the rising support for uh, anti-establishment uh, populist uh, radical right and left, you know, uh, parties. And you know, um, uh, going back, you know, to uh, the 19th century, you know, so it's a, it's a very, you know, uh, in-depth uh, study of uh, you know all European uh, party systems uh, in the last 150 years. And we clearly show, we clearly show that you know the rising support for this, this type of parties leads to a low quality, lower quality of the of, of democracy in terms you know of you know participation of you know equal rights of you know liberalism of course you know I mean the rising in this type of parties will lead to illiberal democracies you know we have you know Hungary for example you know which is the first non-democracy within the European Union Poland you know after the next elections might go or continue let's say the same the same way and you know when you have illiberalism you know you have no respect for minorities you have have, you know no rule of law because you know the uh, judiciary is co-opted by uh, the government and therefore you don't know, have a uh, you know a separation of, uh, of powers this will of course you know uh, infuse uh, more uh, polarization and more uh, uh, conflict between you know uh, the different groups with which will lead, sorry, you know, to to violence, and as we know from the lesson of the interwar period, it will, uh, you know, uh, lead to the uh, collapse of of democracy. So, you know, I mean, uh, I don't want to be to be pessimistic. I I, I think that uh traditional political parties, for all the conversation that we have had, you know, are to be blamed partly for what is happening. But they also think that, you know, they have, they have the solution. And if they would, you know, uh, act as, uh, you know, more uh, responsible, uh, more transparent, you know, uh, more willing to have uh, compromises with those other parties in the mainstream, you know, sometimes, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, you know. I think that, you know, they still have time solve the problem. But clearly, you know, I mean, if uh, this continues uh, this trend, the consequences are not good. History has taught us about this.
0: You brought up um, transparency and also compromise. I'm also wondering if a stronger left, and I'm talking about the real, like a socialist type of narrative, a Marxist narrative, for example, that focuses on class politics and grassroots coalition building can be the medicine required. This idea of repoliticization of economics.
1: Some, for example, Cass Moody, who is an American political scientist, have, have mentioned about this, the importance of the re-ideologization of party uh, right. politics, you know, to, to to bring back, you know, this, uh, because, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, one of the main problems of the rise of these parties is, you know, this collusion between the main political parties, right? And this re-idealization, by the word, you know, they would, uh, it would allow, you know, to uh, differentiate these, you know, political parties from, you know, these, you know, this, I, 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 in, in, terms of, in terms of policies, rather than in terms of management, because you know what this collusion has uh, you know produced, as you have pointed out, is the fact that well, at the end of the day, you see they are the same. They are not different. They only, you know, manage better or worse. So should we, you know, choose the best management? Which is not what, at the end of the day, I think, you know, politics should be should be about. And because and and you see, you know, this also, you know, is like more fire. It's sorry, more fuel to the fire of the, you know, anti-establishment, anti, you know, elites, you know, political discourse of the populist parties. You see, oh, they are the same. You know, I mean, you shouldn't differentiate between them. We are the true ones. You know, the real, the real people. So I think that you know, this is this is this is important. So we have to repoliticize economy, but we also have to tone down a bit, I think, you know, on uh, culture. This is uh, something that it is uh, very, very, very important because, you know, um, and especially not uh, uh, maximized, you know, because at the end of the day, as I mentioned, even if cultural issues are more difficult to tackle, I think that this is still uh, uh, the possibility for compromise. And this is where the mainstream parties should be working because, you know, instead of, you know, building more differences, they should work on the things that, you know, unite uh, unite them, you know, the, the, the main parties. I think that this is uh, something very, very important.
0: Well, on that note, Dr. Fernando, thank you so much for talking to me today.
1: It was a pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: That was Associate Professor Dr Fernando Casalbertoa, School of Politics and International Relations from the University of Nottingham, UK. If you missed any part of this conversation, you can check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Darshan Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast